Hello and welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 57, High Flying Bird, from 2019. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Tobin Addington. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Mike, we are back here. And Tobin, we are back here. But Mike, we are back here for another Cinemakers. We had talked uh, a few weeks ago now on our Matt Stewart's episode about our, our summer of Cinemakers and how that was... We had a very specific idea of how that was going to go. And then it all began to go downhill when we watched Spider's Web movie for mm-hmm. Fede Alvarez. Yes. <laughs> and I messaged you and I was like, can we not do this? And then we messaged... I texted Nick and Nick was like, thank God. God, because I watched it twice, hoping that I would have more oh, to talk no. about the second time, and no. So that failed, and then this, there were some scheduling issues, snafus, whatever, but we are here. It is in the same year that this movie came out, so I think it's a win all around. <laughs> Steven Soderbergh back with another experimental film of sorts. Well, this just came out in February, right? So we're not that yeah. far behind. No, we're not that far. I would say, though, of all of his experimental weirdo things, this is probably my favorite. Not that this is one of my favorite Soderbergh movies, but I think of all the stuff that he has done in a weird way with a unique distribution, with a unique filming style, what have you, I think I like this one more than the other ones, and especially, you know, like Bubble and Full Frontal and all those kind of movies. Yes, well, there's, I got a girlfriend experience vibe from this, at least, you know, that sort of period of Soderbergh. And yeah, you know, we're here for, for the first time he's on Netflix. So, you know, he's jumped on that distribution wagon you know him he's always sort of been at the forefront i'm surprised he wasn't there on day one of netflix he's here now and another iphone film this one i think looking a little better than unsane and a little less sort of obvious as like an iphone film i didn't think of it as much this time but i guess in that regard yeah he's back in that sort of experimental zone now, it's interesting to say, I, I completely agree. I think that looks to me on Letterboxd, Joey, like you have it actually a little higher on the Soderbergh list than I do. You have it at number 12. Well, I love sports. I have it at 14. So we're, you know, we're, we're right in the, in that same area, but it's, do you not count Logan Lucky as an experiment in that way? Well, I think it's an experiment in distribution. Well, Logan Lucky was more of his return out of retirement, right? And that came out as a fully full feature film in theaters and right but it's also i mean that we talked about on that episode about how he had you know sold the netflix rights to fund this and sold the dvd or whatever blah 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 to fund that and like Mm -hmm. that was a whole experiment in distribution i guess i should be more specific in saying experiments in filmmaking rather than distribution the actual physical craft of making the movie shooting this all with an iphone i like that more than full frontal and stuff like that because i mean logan lucky is a master not a, i don't know not a masterpiece yeah, careful, it's, careful. A, it's a near it's, it's a near masterpiece it's, it's on it's yeah. on par with the yards <laughs> oh yards Ooh, yeah, yeah. The modern godfather mm-hmm. yeah 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 okay yeah but no, this is not. This is no Logan Lucky, but it is much more enjoyable, I think, than all the other sort of stuff that he was like, mm-hmm. hey, let's do a weird thing. Well, as someone who isn't, you know, doesn't follow sports as much as you, Joey, but like is, you know, at least now more into sports films and stuff, I was kind of blindsided by this one. Like, I didn't expect it to be more of like, it has more of like a Moneyball vibe than like any other kind of sports movie. Vibe. Like, they don't think they play a game of basketball no, in this. Like, yeah. that's... There's no sports <laughs> I gotta in this. say, like, <laughs> real quick. Only Steven Soderbergh would make a movie about basketball in which there is no basketball. Like, there's people dribbling basketballs and stuff like that, but there is no basketball. I mean, even keeping in mind that this is framed within the NBA lockout, that games are not happening, these are still basketball players, NBA athletes, all these people. Like, there is just so little time spent on a basketball court that aren't, like, speeches. Like, it's just... It is wild. I thought it was hilarious how, like, the one shot of the 
pickup game that we get is filmed on an yes, iPhone yes. and it's mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. in a movie filmed on an iPhone. <laughs> and I just thought like that whole sort of rep- repetition of it was great. Yeah. You know that he's like, he's chuckling along with that, right? Like that's, that's so his sense of humor. I love that there was not like a game that we weren't, it really wasn't about playing, right? It was about how the players are being played uh, or who's playing who, I guess, right? Like all the plays happen sort of off the court. And I think you're totally right. That fits such a Soderbergh thing. And the fact that it works as well as it does probably well maybe not only in his hands but largely because of what he's able to do and i still don't fully understand how ray plays everyone and comes out on top he says at one point like there's a whole other game going on behind the game or I, something, I understand right? and, and appreciate that but i don't know what he's actually doing <laughs> it's like it's machinations that we're seeing and that are unseen and he's pitting the owners against the players against the agents and the players against each other yeah it is uh it's the whole it's a whole twisted web he's weaving i was trying to sort of you know straighten it out in my own head too because i did watch this twice and it is very it is like you have to keep up with it it is not gonna wait for you you know at any point right like it is you have to be like quick with this one and like in their zone and stuff and so what i was sort of parsing together just on like you know very sort of basic level is that during the lockout he's trying to end it as soon as possible and he's showing that there's other ways for these players to be making money, right? Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately that's what happens is that everyone starts to get sort of worried that they don't need to actually play basketball to make money as basketball stars. And this goes beyond advertising and stuff. Like they could actually start doing games like boxing matches on pay-per-view and things. And so I think by opening up everyone's mind in that direction, it sort of scared them into ending the lockout mm-hmm. in, in one way. So like that is sort of one grip of it that I had. You're totally right though, Joey. It's- hard to like I lose my I don't know what all the I don't know all the moves that he makes like by the end of it I don't always right. know who was on whose side at which point and who was being played versus like I, I don't get it uh fully like an, on a sort of plot level but it doesn't really bother me you know it feels almost you know like narratively improvisational and I think that that's like I'm just I'm just sort of going with it because the performances are so good and, and it's brisk you know it's a fast moving you know 90 minute movie like you're in and you're out and there's always so, sort of a surprise in every scene and so yeah for whatever reason and, and I at first I chalked it up maybe to just being such a Soderbergh head that I love that so much but there you know like the critical response was pretty good too I think the the most important thing about the movie is that you need to believe that Ray is the smartest man in the room at all times, and I think it does. Like I think it does. It does that job. I think mm-hmm. that between the performance by Algy, by Andre Holland, Algy from the Nick, yes. by the way that Soderbergh and team have written and filmed him and sort of edited his character, I think it's always clear that even when it doesn't look like that, like especially in the very beginning where he's you know getting his credit cards declined, that he's out of money, that whatever he's not able to use the company credit card, that he's always got a handle on what's going on, and he's always playing the game from both sides and he's always working it's like a chess he's playing chess when other people like when Zachary Quinto his boss who I think is great in this movie in his small part is kind of playing you know one or two moves ahead like Andre Holland is playing three or four moves ahead like he knows he knows exactly how to get from point A to point Z and then you know what to do in between to make sure that this all goes his way and even if we don't like I think improvisational narrative or narrative narratively improvisational or whatever however you want to call it whatever you said Tobin I think I like that in that we don't necessarily need to know how it's all happening because the result for lack of a better word 
or it is jazz and it's it's mm-hmm. entertaining and it's engaging and in the end we know that he wins and that's kind of all that matters yeah i i really did like this character a lot and i think andre Holland and is like he just he carries this movie so well like you know like give him anything like he's such a leading man like he's so striking and in command of the scenes and stuff but I was really I, I really found the character interesting because I don't feel like he knows at every moment exactly what is going on necessarily like he's, he's able to improvise and sort of see from certain angles and like he's like the best player of this sort of of the boardroom game or something mm. or the the inside basketball as opposed to like the court stuff so I found that very interesting like not only is he sort of relying on people to be who they are in order to get them to you know Know, do things they don't even realize they're going to do at times. Mm. He's also not quite sure this is actually going to work and pulled off. So there's a lot of like tense moments here that wouldn't normally be tense, I feel, like from other perspectives. But from his perspective, it's like, all right, everything is, he's really on the clock to, to end this lockout. It's such a good point. The tension is pretty palpable in a sports movie, again, with no sports, right? Like in a sports movie that, as you say, is more of like a boardroom chess match than than it is, or in like a social media slash boardroom chess match. Another thing I really appreciate about this movie, as with so many Soderbergh movies, is his ability to not condescend to the audience. Like he just drops you in and it is up to you to you know, stick with it and pay attention and mm-hmm. figure out. And something that's that in, in, in his best experiments, he's able to keep the rest of the balls in the air to mix my metaphors, the rest of the action sort of uh, scene to scene, interesting enough that you're not bothered by being outside of the story at first, right? There's enough sort of fun performances and witty dialogue and uh, interesting characters that you're watching that, that it, I think it goes down easier than some of the experiments where he's <laughs> dropping you in the middle of bubble and not giving you any sort of clues about who you're dealing with. And do you think that is a choice by him, like in bubble versus this to just sort of be like, hey, good luck, or is that his growth as a filmmaker? or is that like has he all I mean because I guess when you look at a guy who makes Sex, Lies, and Videotape as his first movie mm-hmm. you're like oh this guy mm-hmm. knows exactly what he's doing but clearly in the 15 years or whatever since Bubble came out he's grown as a filmmaker and he's made some of his best movies he's ever made do you think that that is a choice that he's always been making like here I'm going to give you little information versus all the information or enough or do you think over time he's sort of realized hey maybe I shouldn't do that maybe maybe it's better to do it this way or it's just sort of innate now into him I think that it's I mean, it's hard because I like Bubble a lot more than you do. I like this movie better than Bubble, but I like Bubble a lot more than you do. And it's probably a combination of the two, I would think, right? Like part of it is as his growth as a as an artist and his sort of understanding of what an audience will or won't tolerate. That's part of the of experiments, right? You try a thing, you see how it does. Does it work or does it not? What part of it does, whatever it doesn't, you retain the things that work well and apply that to things going forward. In his in the in the best sense, that's what he does so often. But I think also there is a, a, a thing, it's just sort of you get the sense that he makes movies he would love to see. And he is a smart guy who doesn't want to see dumb movies. He'll see smart, dumb movies, but not dumb, dumb movies. So I, I think that, that, that part of it's got just got to be his taste, too. Yeah, I, I I feel like some of it is like, oh, I want to see this movie done in a different way. Why show? Why make this movie like the way it's been done before? It's like, I still want to see this story told again, but, you know, let's try and present it in a different direction. And I'll be honest, like with this movie, I was treading water the first time I watched it because 
does. Like, I felt thrown into the deep end, but there's enough going on otherwise between the look of it and, you know, the speed of it. And I eventually got immersed into the politics of it and all that stuff. So I, I found my way through it. But the second time, I really liked it a lot more and was able to keep up with it. So I started thinking about that too, Joey. Is like, I wonder if it's just a case by case basis or if he figured this particular story could be best presented in this style. And it's a style that he's, you know, been able to use before. It's like in his bag of tricks. And then I started thinking even more, you know, we mentioned Logan Lucky, how that has like a fourth act to it and stuff. And then I recalled an interview of him saying how he sort of wants to get away from just classic American structure in general and, you know, is more interested in foreign film structure and things that they're doing in Asia and Japan and Russia and stuff. And like, they don't follow necessarily the same rules as American films that everybody is sort of brainwashed to, you know, sort of just expect first, second and third act type of thing. So I, I, I wonder if that has more to do with it, where it's like, I'm trying to create completely new and unique ways of even presenting story. You know, like, I just want to break classic structure. Which is so perfect in this movie because that's what Andre Holland's character is trying to do. He's trying to break the rules of the way that the game is played in order to sort of invent a new thing. And then I think what happens at the end is that by doing that, he actually brings the status quo back around, right? He refreshes the status quo as opposed to actually turning them into into boxing, which feels to me kind of like Soderbergh. Like he he does this experiment, he tries to sort of break the rules and then like find his finds his way back to, you know, to a more sort of traditional, revitalized traditional framework of storytelling or distribution or whatever. So it's so that's so cool. I love that's a that seems like a metaphor for him as much as um, the movie. You know, the one big difference that I had between the first and the second viewing, like because you're sort of saying that you were treading water and sort of understood a little bit more what he was doing the second time around. I was sort of thrown off by just how many words there are in this movie? Like, it feels like there's more words per minute than not just most Soderbergh movies, but I feel like most movies. Like, I don't say there's not a lot of visual action. There's not a lot of, like, people doing big things. There's a lot of right, people right. talking. Like, it's a, it's a movie about negotiation. It is sort of like a law movie in that way. It's like lawyers in a courtroom kind of arguing, just instead of a courtroom, it's, you know the court <laughs> or um, oh, you. or you know an office or whatever I did not mean that when I started the sentence it just sort of wound up there but anyway I think because the action has to be delivered vocally through words via words that's how it's always going to be but I remember the first time I watched like the, the night it came out I paused because I was like I was almost like feeling like exhausted just by like how much and it's not exposition like it's not it's not telling not showing like he's doing both but it's just there's so mm -hmm. much there's so many words <laughs> and i was like just being pelted by dialogue by narration by exposition i was just like whoo it didn't feel that way the second time around. like i still appreciated you know i still recognized how many words there were but the second time around i sort of was like oh okay this all flows i see what's going on here i know the structure of things i'm not as overwhelmed by all of this and i don't know if either of you felt that way I definitely noticed the talkiness. I mean, it's written by a playwright, predominantly playwright, Terrell Alvin McCraney, who wrote the play that the movie Moonlight was based on. And then I believe co-wrote the script for Moonlight, which is where he met Andre Holland. And they sort of hatched this idea together. And then Andre Holland was working on The Nick with Soderbergh. It was like, hey, we have this idea. And Soderbergh's like, yes, I'm, I'd love to be involved. So he comes from a playwriting background, and this is his first solo credit as a screenwriter. And so it sort of it makes sense that it would be pretty um, dialogue heavy. It's interesting, too, though, because like you said, Joey, it doesn't feel like he's 
telling everything instead of showing. I still, like in a weird way, like I'm getting exposition and you're getting, like he's filling certain people in on certain details. So like as you go along and meet different people, you sort of get the full picture, I feel, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And, and I think that, and then you get that great scene when he's talking about his cousin finally and everything like that. And I, I like, I feel like they build character. Mm-hmm. Like it's weird in that way. I don't know if that's weird, but in a way, I feel like the, the scenes are building characters through these conversations a lot. And they're almost like action scenes or like standoffs and duels and stuff like that, but with words and attitudes and people's sort of um, convictions instead, you know, they're using those as shields and swords instead. Uh, Like that sauna room when uh, him and Kyle MacLachlan finally come face to face, that's like, you know, Luke fighting Darth Vader (laughs) for this movie. (laughs) So it's it's an interesting trick how he's able to have such a talky film, you know, for lack of a better term, not that that's a bad thing or anything, but it also not feeling slow or anything like feeling like there's action taking place at times. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a play. If, if anybody out there is listening has not watched the movie, and don't don't be put off by it. It, it. it doesn't feel like a play. It feels very much like a movie, which is probably it has as much to do with Soderbergh's interpretation of the of the script. But they do. You're right. Like the set pieces are all in dialogue in the in the way that the best. I'm gonna now say it. Court movies are courtroom dramas you're welcome welcome. yeah thank you thank you that sort of that really makes sense this isn't a bit of an exaggeration but I think it feels more like a movie than sometimes it looks like a movie because I think at times I mean it is beautiful because an iPhone can shoot beautiful video but I feel like sometimes especially if you know it's shot on an iPhone you're like oh this looks weird like there's times where like the the screen sort of shakes a little bit like I don't know if it's the image stabilization or whatever in the iPhone but I feel like the narrative of it the dialogue of it everything like that like you're saying Tobin feels like a movie like I wouldn't say be put off by that I think that there is something visually about this that sort of separates it more from other movies and not always in a good way or not in a fun way it's just sort of a oh there's something happening here kind of way it's it's different visually i think than it is narratively yeah that makes sense another change or thing that makes it very much not a play are the little interviews we have with nba players about their experiences which and i think mike i think you mentioned moneyball earlier so moneyball was a movie that soderbergh was supposed to make and his version of it was part scripted and but he would have the actual athletes playing themselves and then part documentary interviews with those people like it sounds totally weird uh the script of it is available online you can find it online and it's like half you know just sort of description and then and then half an actual script but he borrowed that idea he sort of reused that idea here and i think it works much better for this movie what did you all think of that did you think that worked well in this to have those interviews interspersed i really liked it yeah because we don't we only follow one player really throughout this whole movie and you know he's he took out like a loan like a garbage loan that he stuck in and stuff and I mean I, I really appreciated getting these different perspective and points of views from the other teammates and stuff like that or the other players the rookies of you know explaining their experience and how they're all different and it also gave me you know it just gave me Soderbergh vibes because it's like from Aaron Brockovich to Ocean's Eleven to like several other movies like a lot of them start with interviews of people like sort of head-on face-to-face breaking that fourth wall right out of the gate so it worked for me I liked it yeah I liked it too I think we talked about how I like sports I don't really follow basketball as much as I do other sports and so I didn't know like I didn't recognize these guys by face or 
whatever. Like, I didn't recognize him right away, so I wasn't sure. Like, it worked for me narratively. Like, I think it worked really well in the movie. But I was sort of trying to figure out for a little bit, like, if they were real players or if they were more sort of characters from this world because the main character is not a real player. You know what I mean? So I was trying to figure that out. And that was more of my own sort of brain just trying to figure out what we're actually seeing here, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think I could have just let it go and just enjoyed it. I did think it worked. I think it also would have been cool in a way, and I don't know that it ever would have happened just because of timing. Although this movie only did take three weeks to shoot, (laughs) but I think it would have been cool if you had like a real... Like, you know, he was a college player, or maybe even not even in college yet when this movie was shot, but Zion Williamson, who was just, you know, just led Duke to the Final Four, I think, or the Elite Eight at least, and then is going to be drafted number one by the Pelicans in June in in next month's draft, or this month's draft, or whenever this episode comes out anyway. It would have been cool if you had somebody like him who is this, you know, the sort of the new modern, the the, the modern-day LeBron James, like the next can't-miss prospect as himself or as a version of himself as opposed to just an actor. You know what I mean? Like, I think that would have been kind of cool and kind of could have fit in with Soderbergh's vision and style and touch and decisions and whatever. But I also don't mind sort of where we wound up in this world. Do you have a favorite performance in this movie? I, I liked when Bill Duke showed yes. up. I'll just yes. say, like, Bill Duke really brought a lot of weight to this movie. And it's not like he's... Shout out Mandy, right? Yeah, shout out Mandy. And it's not even that he's like extremely serious in this. He's just, I just get so much respect coming off of his character, you know, like people respect him to the, you know, hundredth degree and stuff. So I really loved when he showed up and that he came in and out of the movie a lot. You know, I don't know how you don't pick Andre Holland just because he's so good here. But see, oh, well, that I, was I'm, I'm just sort of assuming that we're going we're gonna to leave him right. off the table. I should have said besides the lead, yeah. I gotta go Zazie Beats as his assistant turned, I don't know, ruler of the world by the end of the movie. I don't know <laughs> yes, what she totally. is by the end of the movie. Totally. But she is so good. And what I also like about this movie, and like they don't dwell on it at all, but that she and the main character, whose name I'm not remembering at the moment, have like a sexual relationship, or at least they have sex at one point. Right. And it's so understated that it's not a thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like a, I don't know if we're mm-hmm. in a relationship, I don't know if we just had sex because we were bored or whatever, but when he goes to that court and he's, you know, talking shit on his rival or whatever, his rival shows up, he's like, oh, I can't play, I just had sex and I never have sex before a game. We know that he was with her. And I just like that there's like this undercurrent of like realism, I guess, or uh. just like this, you know, these story beats, like we don't see them, you know, start to make out and cut away or whatever like we're just again Soderbergh is treating us like that we're intelligent enough to realize not that that's really like a, 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 a huge logical leap to make but that it's just another thing that happens in this movie but anyway I love her she's great in this yes yeah, matter of fact it's like matter of fact in it yeah yeah She's amazing. I, Bill Duke was who I was going to say. Mike, as you're saying, the gravitas that he brings, but also the humor. And I just think he he's sort of like the, there's like a, there's a lot of history with him, both as a actor and this character in this story has so much history. And I just think that's a, a wonderful, wonderful performance. But, you know, seeing Sonia Son from The Wire, seeing Kyle MacLachlan show up, like, as the slimy, like... Mr. Jackpots. Yes, yes. He's the, well, the Players Association president or... or no, 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 no. The the owners, the owners. Are so, right? Yep, the, yep. Yeah, yeah. He's Mister C. He's yes. like the dark Cooper. <laughs> right, right, right. And I just and as as you said before, Zachary Quinto, like these actors that I knew showing up in in places, you know, in these in these parts that like you get the sense that anybody would do anything for Soderbergh, right? Like he could sort of have whoever he wants. It really does feel like he gets to sort of just pick and choose. And this movie feels a little bit like, oh, Zachary Quinto's in New York this week. Great, let's throw him in the movie, and you know. But you're right, Joey. The whole 
thing revolves around this is a showcase for Andre Holland. And I I worry come award season that based on how early in the year it was released and the fact that it was a Netflix movie, that he won't sort of be as recognized for this movie as he should be. But even when I don't understand what he's doing exactly, he is <laughs> so much fun to watch and so, so, so good as we've as we've all, as I know, I have gushed on this podcast before with the Nick. But again, I, I just think he is remarkable in this movie. I have a feeling he might not get nominated for this only because like something might come out in November with him in it that he'll get nominated I for. So. Like it feels, yeah. you, you know, like it just feels like he's his moment is like right about to happen. Another thing that we've sort of noticed recently on a lot of things that we're covering, Mike, is there is a the titular High Flying Bird theme song in this movie. Oh my gosh, Which yes. we have seen a lot on the Tom Tom Club on our Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks episodes. <laughs> that there are a lot of those movies, but whew. You know what the, I caught? I don't know if you guys caught it, but it's something that might have felt a little out of place in Logan Lucky, but there's a Game of Thrones reference in this movie as well. Did you catch it? So like in Logan Lucky, you know, the, the inmates want the new books, but in this... Which I loved, and you guys did not. No, I liked it. I thought it was funny. I did not like it, yeah. <laughs> and in this, when Andre Holland's talking to Sonia San, they're trying to explain like how evil or what a what a dick this person is. And she mentions, is it Walter Frey, mm-hmm. the guy, oh, yeah, 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 from the Red Wedding? Yes. So I was like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's just going to be part of our lexicon now, which is kind of weird because that is a very sprawling narrative. That even though I've seen every episode, I probably won't pick up on a lot of them. Like just in there's an episode, I think maybe the finale of Better Things, the Pam Adlon show on FX, there's like a very casual Game of Thrones reference. I was like, oh, I guess that's just part of how we write and part of how we speak now. Part of like our reference to things is just like picking one of the 500 characters that, you know, grace the screen or the books. And this is just... This is the this is the metaphor for now. Well, it made me wonder if Soderbergh was such a fan that like he secretly shot Second Unit on like season three or something. That we oh, just that'd don't be know amazing! Because he was like over at HBO doing the Nick or something, and he's like, you know what? And 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 that would totally be something he would do, right? So I looked up Andre Holland on IMDb. He's only going to be the only thing he's working on right now is a, a show called a mini series called The Eddie E D D Y. A French club owner deals with the everyday chaos of running a live music venue in the heart of Paris. Drama and musical starring him and Layla. Le Becti, she is from, I guess she's a French actress, most known for a Parisian Tam and a prophet. The Eddie is, a, that's the Damien Chazelle show. Oh, well then I'm going to love it. <laughs> Throughout this movie, there's a runner about the package that he gives to Eric, right, the book, and he's like, you gotta read this, this is the Bible, whatever, and it is the revolt of the black athlete, and so there's this whole thing on Refinery29 from February when this movie came out about how that scene, the final scene, illuminates the entire movie, and about, so there's this whole thing that I will put on our, put in the Discord channel, but there's this whole thing, and I want to read this real quick and just sort of synopsize it but it's about like this thing that sort of feels like I was like what is the significance of this book because it seems very important to the narrative but it's not explained but there's a whole explanation that I'm going to do a quick synopsis while you guys chat and I'll, I'll recap it that was the actual author at the end that he greets in his office when he says doctor nice to meet you like that's the author of the book that he gave away I just felt like you know he referred to that thing as the bible so when you find out what it was I figured like this was all of the insight that he got to pull off what he did you know like everything he learned he learned from this book and at the end he was like meeting the man who wrote it and so it seemed like a journey for him sort of became complete in that sense too and I love the line he gives to Zach Quinto too he's like get up because you're sitting in my chair (laughs) like that like it all just felt like all right like his plan 
was pulled off and like that last moment was like proof sort of the payoff yeah it's, it's a, it was interesting that he's so bold so often right like he just he'll just drop that at the end and not explain it and like trust that either you will know or you will go look up and see you know that this is this you know this harry edwards book and you know like dig into what it has to say about sports and race and society and everything and, and so it's yeah i just i love i love that about Soderbergh. i love and even when it can be maddening it's uh it's really exciting to see a filmmaker who trusts us so much and that's something we didn't really touch on that is very predominant. This film is a very predominantly black film. The major players, actors, and story all revolve around them. And so, you know, even today, like, it's kind of still kind of rare in a sense when you have, like, the full black cast and stuff. But here it was very, uh, it was very interesting. It was very called for. And I don't know. I just thought it was, it was very respectful in that manner. And so that is kind of the key to all of this. And that's something, it's the kind of stuff that we've been talking about the entire episode that you guys are just talking about there. But uh, the book is about uh, a treatise on how the collective voices and concerted actions of black athletes could evoke institutional change. And so it followed the 1968 Summer Olympics. And that's the, you know, even if you don't know what that is, that, you know, you know, the iconic image of the two athletes uh, raising their fists, black power on the podium. And so it's about how even just very few athletes can make concerted change if they're united. And it's sort of in a world in which Colin Kaepernick is doing everything he can you know, he sort of threw his career away to sort of in the, in the I mean, not intentionally, but it wound up being that way in service of the greater good. Like, how do you tell a story in which athletes can have a say? And it's not really a sports movie, but it's about the sports system. And it's about how you're able to sort of take ownership of your career and your image and your abilities and not make these fat cat owners even wealthier while you get, you know, shunned out of the league as uh, Andre Holland's, his character's brother in this movie was for being gay, right? Like, you're able to sort of take ownership of who you are and sort of break free of the the hold that these owners have on you. And, it's, you know, greater allegories there, I'm sure. And I'm, I'm not going to go into this because I don't have the knowledge or the experience, but other other people have made, you know, sort of slavery-ish, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, owners, yeah. ownership and everything. All of that. And, like, how do you regain control of – I talk about a lot in this movie, about your image and sort of your name and your brand. And, and your body. Yeah, what you are and are not allowed or able to do. So I, even though the movie doesn't explicitly, you know, lay out what that book, the real significance of the book is, the movie tells that significance throughout the entire narrative. Right, exactly. That's a great way to put it. It's like the what he's. It's sort of like he's underlining the thesis that he's that he's just proven in the story, right? Like he's that, that he's just that he's just sort of explained in the story, it, which is why it feels so kind of bold that it's not you say it at the beginning and then we all reference it throughout the course of the movie. Like there's even much more traditional ways to incorporate that into your story. Again, this is just bold enough to say, okay, here's the story, and then underline it with this sort of like putting this book down at the end of it that has been there the whole time but sort of wrapped up, you know? So, yeah, that's that's totally cool. I don't know if I have a lot more to say about this movie. Oh, wait, no, didn't we talk about... Was Unseen... Unseen was not... Unseen was just an iPhone movie. That was not a Netflix movie. That was theaters and stuff, right? Because there was a quote that I pulled. I've been in conversations with Netflix during Unseen, and when I ended up going in a different way, I said, look, I have this other thing... I'll make sure you get your eyes on it early. When it was basically finished, I brought it to them and I said, great, we'd like to buy it. It felt like the kind of mo- the film it is, the best way to maximize eyeballs. It's got a better shot of finding all the people who will like it. Otherwise, it's a slow-rolling platform release, which are expensive and you're bound by where the big art house theaters are. You can't just go anywhere. I just felt I'd rather have it drop and have everyone be able to see it. And this was the movie, if you remember, that not only did it take three weeks to shoot, but after he finished it, 
three hours later, he had a rough cut. So I can see, you know, when you're in that kind of mindset as Steven Soderbergh, you could be like, well, I have a movie that's done. We could put it on Netflix, like, you know, not that not it's this way, but like tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, let's just get it out there. So I can totally see why you don't want to go through this like, oh, well, like if you're in New York and L.A. and near uh, the Arclight or near, you know, the uh, IFC Center or whatever. And like you could go to these one theaters for one week or just like on Netflix and like it doesn't have the flair, the pomp and circumstance of it all. But everyone sees it on a Friday in February when there's nothing else going on. Yeah, you're going to reach all the people who are going to go to the AMC, right? But this will never get shown at the AMC. Like, that's, right? But so it's the same audience as Netflix. And, like, that's so smart. It's, like, it's the same people that wouldn't go to the art house in Manhattan plus the people who would go to the art house like everybody's watching Netflix so you could yeah you've got a much better much better odds of people finding your movie that way well and interesting too is he must have had some kind of a good experience with this because much earlier in the process in terms of production and post-production of his next movie the laundromat with um Meryl Streep this is the uh, Panama Papers movie that's coming out this fall that he like went with Netflix to finance and release that movie kind of from the beginning, right? Like, so it's a much more, and this is like awards movie. It's, you know, it's got Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas in it. Like, it's a big, you know, it's like a big play. Like, now that Netflix movies are winning Oscars, right? Like, what's the difference? So the way I think of it a little bit is that, (laughs) this, again, shows my sort of Soderbergh head quality. The boldness or the, the, the vision of distribution companies and the and the infrastructure of of new kinds of distribution are finally catching up with where he's been trying to be for a long time. You know, as a person who back all the way back at uh, Bubble, you know, was trying to find ways to release movies on DVD and in the theater the same day and all that kind of stuff. It's it feels like that the world's kind of catching up with him. It's just a matter of whether or not, you know, Netflix wants to embrace him and, you know, champion him because the, the world has caught up to him and how he wants to distribute things. But, you know, Mike, you're saying that it's right that Netflix movies are winning Oscars, but it feels like, you know, the Netflix distribution and release schedule is so muddied that it needs to, they, they sort of need to either put it on the home screen. Like, you know, we just did a couple weeks ago for Zack Attack, for the Zack Efron podcast, I do Joe too. Like when you open Netflix, the Ted Bundy movie was just right there. You know what I mean? Like, I don't remember back in February if this was right there, but it's also a matter of down the line, if Netflix really believes in this and thinks that, you know, Andre Holland or Soderbergh or the screenwriter or whoever have a shot at winning an Oscar, they can take this movie and put it on their back and sort of champion it to the world once again. But I also feel like with The Irishman coming out, that's going to be a Netflix thing. They're sort of going to put all their eggs in that basket. You know what I mean? So the pros and cons of an unconventional, I guess, or a, a conventional this year, conventional in 2019 release schedule. The best thing about it is it's always going to be there if you want it, right? Like, it's, you know, right. it's never going to be down. You'll always be able to, to search for it. Yeah. Uh, Tobin, do you have anything else to say about High Flying Bird before we uh, close up shop on this episode of Cinemakers and then, I don't know, maybe come back in five or six months or seven months or whenever the laundromat <laughs> is out on Blu-ray? Only one thing to say, which is that as I'm looking through the credits, you know, the looking for sort of new names and stuff, I see this music by David Wilder Savage, which just sounds so much like a pseudonym. And I thought, oh, my God, did Soderbergh, like, compose the music for this movie, too? <laughs> and then I find a lot of reports that it's it's a pseudonym used by Thomas Newman, 
who's a pretty famous composer. Wally, Skyfall, Shawshank. He did music for Bridge of Spies, speaking of um, your, your, buddy, your buddy Tom. And then he's, did, he's done Soderbergh movies too. He did Side Effects, The Good German, and Aaron Brockovich. He's been nominated for 14 Oscars, okay? So like the guys, he's like, a, you know, he's one of the, the big heavy hitters. But for whatever reason, this movie and Unsane, both he used a pseudonym for. And I, I don't know why I have no, I don't know why. I know why, because him and Soderbergh became close friends and he, yeah. he's like, you know what I do sometimes? I, yeah. I edit my own films under a pseudonym or I write them under a pseudonym. And he's like, hey, that's pretty cool. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. It, it does totally, it does totally feel that way. Like it's just part of the joke of the things, you know? So like maybe his iPhone movies will always be, will always have, um, you know, David Wilder Savage as the... As the credited writer. Dude, that's not a bad call. Maybe he wanted to sort of like differentiate himself a little bit and be like, yeah, these are my iPhone movies. My last note was this is a little, another little bit of trivia is that Andre Holland suggested this story to Steven Soderbergh. So um, I don't know if he was in touch with the screenwriter or not, but this was at some point his idea or his, his germ of a story. And so cool. And he's cre- credited as an executive producer as well. Yeah. Mike, what about you? Any other last thoughts about High Flying Bird? I guess just about the way it was shot. Like, I wanted to mention earlier when you were talking about it, Joey, like, I do agree with you. There are some limitations shooting with an iPhone. However, I feel like there's way less limitations than, say, when they converted to digital in the first place or when you're shooting, like... TV movies and things like I I really feel like the iPhone holds up like really well in its infancy here being used for feature films and stuff and because like if this is the third one I've seen now two Soderbergh that feel completely different and then Tangerine which is like balls to the wall super different uh, than this movie Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think like it's you know I, I think it's got a bright future and I wouldn't be surprised if Soderbergh maybe mixed like iPhone with other digital cameras with film and you know and it's just sort of like put a red camera here put an iphone there but i don't know i just think like the iphone i'm cool with it it's here to stay there's very few shots that feel like they're the only type of shot you could get with an iphone yeah i think like there are a few limitations now but i could really see it being something people use a lot like not just Soderbergh mm-hmm. but I think like people will adopt the iPhone and start shooting it like in general down the line and there are other I don't know if there's side effects or conscious decisions that are either linked to using the iPhone or not but there's like a lot of natural light in this movie like the movie feels dark at mm-hmm. points like sort of I guess it's in that way Game of Thrones hey it's back in our conversation again but how <laughs> as that show went on they started just using more natural light and things were darker but like the shots of Zachary Quinto's office or whatever, where there might be other light, I don't know, but it feels like we're just using the light that's coming in through the office windows and just shooting there because the iPhone is able to adapt. And maybe it can adapt better than a camera. Maybe it doesn't adapt as well, and that's why it looks darker. I don't know, but it's something that I definitely noticed here, that it was going for that more on-the-fly, all-natural look, Mm -hmm. that it felt like there was more natural light. There wasn't as... It wasn't as much of a movie movie. And again, I guess that goes back to our conversation earlier about how it feels like a movie but doesn't necessarily look like a movie but you know i i agree with you mike i think it's here to stay and i'm on board so that's all i got cool well tobin thank you so much for i mean not not that we have to thank you for being our guest because you're not our guest you're our co-host here but thank you for coming back and doing high flying bird with us you have the contender still going strong you were doing that when we were doing the regular run of cinemakers i believe yes that's right yeah but yeah why don't you talk a little bit because people are tired of hearing me and mike talk i think but uh why don't people <laughs> why don't you tell people a little bit more about the contenders and what movies you've covered lately with your sister island yes good so uh, thank you my sister and i have a podcast called the contenders about movies made by and starring women 
who refuse to play by the rules. So we're looking at uh, movies by and about fearless women, and we sort of go all over the map in terms of what we uh, what we cover. So you know, we do new recent movies like Captain Marvel. We go back a while. We did a great episode on the hours. We did Thelma and Louise. Um, the, our last two, as of our recording of this, we did Barbed Wire, which I which is a I think I hope a fun episode to listen to. Not a great movie to watch. Uh, we should have left that for the folks over at Real Bad. And then uh, and then we did Dumplin, another Netflix movie with Jennifer Aniston, which is a, a delightful little movie. So yeah, so we have a good time, and you should uh, you come come check us out. Thelma and Louise just came up in conversation when we were recording our Rain Man episode of Cruise Club because we were talking about Dustin Hoffman being nominated for Best Actor and Tom Cruise not being nominated, but maybe could have or should have been. And that led to a whole a line of questioning down the path of like, well, have there been multiple actors nominated for lead actor and i think maybe the most recent time in the, the best act like two not not supporting because supporting was just in the favorite but i think the, maybe the last time or one of the last times one of the very few times that both lead actors or lead actresses in a film have been nominated was in thumb and louise so they were both nominated there there's only happened like four or five times i think i mean it makes sense if you're gonna do it for a movie that's one to do it yeah Sure, of course. But yeah, so go check out The Contenders, check out the Tom Tom Club. So The Contenders is every other Tuesday. Tom Tom Club, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks alternate every Friday. Fridays are for fun. Mike's got Third Time's a Charm. There's lots of shows. We've got 25 shows now that you can go check out at cageclub.me. Um, so just go check out. There's new episodes just about every weekday. So find the movie you like, listen to that. There's music ones, there's nostalgia ones, there's comic book ones. Whatever you're into, as long as it's pop culture we probably have you covered. But go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, cinemakers at cageclub.me. Check out our Patreon and Threadless shops, uh, pages, whatever, at cageclub.me. And come back some point later this year for probably a Karin Kusama series with the aforementioned Island Addington. Who knows when that'll be, but that is the next one lined up at some point. I did not know that. I am here. I am here. I'm going to listen to every episode twice. There you go. Surprise, surprise. But there are 57 episodes now, Cinemakers, so you've got lots of episodes to talk about, or to listen to. Uh, Steven Soderbergh, Christopher Nolan, Matt Stewart, Matt Stewart, Amy Heckerling, Fede Alvarez, the RKSS Collective. All of their movies have been covered, except for Spider's Web, but 57 episodes. Go check them out at cageclub.me and wherever you get podcasts. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we'll be back at some point for Cinemakers for Karin Kusama right here on Cinemakers. There's a high-flying bird flying way up in the sky And I wonder if she looks down and she goes on by Well, she's flying so pretty in the sky Lord, look at me I'm rooted like a tree